Well, please remain standing with me and turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John. If you are visiting with us, we are working our way through John's Gospel. If you aren't a Christian um, and are just checking out the church, we're glad that you're here. And so we printed the text for you on page 11 so you can have that in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one of those Bibles in front of you and take it home with you. John chapter 5, this is God's Word, starting with verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you... Do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who will accuse you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You may be seated. I read this uh, quote from Augustine today, and I wanted to share, or this week, and I wanted to share it with you. Augustine, the fourth century um, preacher and pastor and bishop wrote to his people um, who had been praying for them. He said this, I have no doubt that you have also prayed for me. And then he said this, that I may owe, and this is what he said this at the beginning of his sermon, that I may owe what is due to you. And that's, I thought, man, what a great back and forth that is between God's people and the preacher, that many of you have prayed for me. And my prayer now is that, and with Augustine, that God may repay Uh, what is owed to you. So would you join with me as we pray together and ask God to pay out his favor in Christ. God, we would ask that you would give us what is due to us in Christ. For you have promised that when your word goes out, it goes out with the power to recreate, to make the desert bloom with new life. You've promised that it will never return to you void. And so we pray that as we dig into your word, Lord Jesus, 
Be our prophet who preaches to us. Be our king who subdues us. Be our priest who comforts us. All with your gospel. We pray this in your name, our Savior. Amen. You know, it's sort of a, a rule of life. Children, you might want to take note of this. It's a rule of life that you become who you follow. The great poet Bob Dylan captured it this way. you got to serve somebody. We were designed... Nobody was designed to be autonomous. We were designed to follow after someone. We're shaped by who we follow. That's what it may, means to be made in the image of God. Not self-contained people who find our own way in this world. Everyone is following someone. But there's a danger too. Because you become who you follow. Parents, you probably noticed this with your children. They start to take on the mannerisms of speak and speech of whoever is the leader of their friend group. You've noticed them begin to change and become like that person. They're following them. And for many of you, you've seen a new manager come into your area of work and it begins to take on, the whole area of work begins to take on the personality of that manager or CEO can change the whole context of a company until that company begins to be like him. Takes on the personality of the leader. We are people who are designed by God to follow somebody. And one of the major themes of John's gospel is faith and belief. And he's picking it up here in, in John chapter 5. But faith in John's gospel is not just mere intellectual. It's not assenting to a certain set of truths. It's not simply agreeing with doctrinal statements. Faith is entrusting. Entrusting to the care of Jesus. It involves assenting to certain truths because they are the truths that Jesus teaches. And as a follower of him, all of my life is governed by him. I should be picking up his mannerisms. This is the fruit of the Spirit that the Spirit produces in God's people. The mannerisms of Jesus. His truth becomes my truth because I've entrusted myself to his care. It means learning from him as teacher, following his commands as master and taking his truths to be our truths because he is God in the flesh. Many religions are comfortable with Jesus as one among many. Islam will assent to Jesus as a good guide. He is an esteemed prophet within Islam who should be followed and honored. His name should be recognized. Many Buddhists likewise will recognize Jesus as a worthy guide towards goodness in life. Right? If you follow the ways of Jesus, you'll attain a good life. Or even philosophical systems are willing to say that Jesus is a good moral teacher. But Jesus himself is not willing to be followed as one among many. He's not willing to be followed as just a good guide. He is not one among many, but the one and only God, and this is what is getting him into trouble. Because he's making this claim, they're, they're looking to kill him. He's not willing to be just one of many prophets or one of many rabbis. He is God in the flesh. This is what he means in verse 30. 
when he says, I can do nothing on my own. He's saying, because I and the Father are one, because we are equal, because we share the same nature, I can do nothing on my own. I can only see what the Father is doing and do those things, because we are of the same stuff. We are one God who eternally exists in three persons. It's is it completely impossible for me to do anything but what I see my Father doing. For me to do something different would be to break the unity of the Godhead. The Trinity would fall apart because we share the same nature. And so I can only do what I see my Father doing. There's, it's impossible for me to do anything else. And then he picks this up in verse 19. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Verse 20, if you've got your Bibles. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. Verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also must the Son give life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus is is just hammering this point home. I am God, not one amongst many, but the one true God who has come from the Father. And this is at the heart of the gospel. Because the gospel says to us, the heart of Jesus' mission is I am the Son of God who became the incarnate Son of Man to make sons of God of sin-cursed men and women. That's the heart of the gospel. It's also what makes Christianity just so very and utterly unique, but also, as we'll see, offensive. That God and the person of Jesus Christ has come to restore what sin broke because sin-cursed men and women like you and I could not do anything because by nature we're spiritually dead, wicked to the core. And as a result... As a result, Jesus, as God in the flesh, will have no other gods before him. He demands complete obedience, complete loyalty to himself. And that Jesus is God is an offensive and outlandish claim. I mean, I think we maybe have become a little too comfortable with it just to realize how outlandish of a claim it is if you venture to other countries and they would be comfortable with Jesus as a good guide but to be the one true God to whom everything is owed is a little outlandish but it should be outlandish to us too because we are constantly having other things competing for entrusting loyalty and in verse 18 it was so outlandish Jews were quite upset with him because he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. This is C.S. Lewis's old point, that if if Jesus' claims are true, he should be followed with utter and complete loyalty. And if they're not true, he's a raving maniac and shouldn't be followed at all. He's either a fool and out of his mind Or he is the one true God. And if he is, he should be entrusted with every area of our lives. Followed with every bit of our being. 
Because who else is there to follow but the one true God manifest in the flesh? The Son of Man become, the Son of God become the Son of Man to make sons of God out of sin-cursed men and women. But the question that you should be asking, if you're going to hang all of your life on the hook of Jesus, the question you should be asking is, Jesus, what proof do you have? What proof can you offer me? That you are worthy of my complete and utter dependency. Because faith is not blind. Faith asks questions. Faith sometimes even asks so many questions that that doubt is present as well. Faith is not blind trust. Faith is thoughtful. Faith involves evidence. It has a basis. And so Jesus begins in this passage to lay out reasons his claims to be God should be honored. And he starts by making this point in verse 31. He doesn't testify to himself. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Don't take me at my own word. Parents, you've probably had this experience when you've walked into you know, the room and someone has broken, one of your kids has broken something. And you ask around and they say, well, I didn't do it. Well, a good parent will investigate that. Are their claims valid? Did they or did they not do it? Are they telling me the truth? And the answer to that question is always one of two people did it. Not me or I don't know. Not a very valid witness to testify to yourself. And so just Jesus' point, I don't testify to myself. But there's something deeper going on. Jesus has taken up the form of, in this passage, of an ancient Israelite courtroom. In an ancient Israelite courtroom, accusations would be brought by an offended party. And then witnesses would be brought in. Are you guilty or innocent? Bring in your witnesses. Typically three witnesses would be appealed to. Minimum three. But notice as well that he's marching. He's going to march three witnesses in front of us this morning. But notice as well that an appeal to an authority as a witness has to be greater than the claim. You've got to have a subject uh, you've got to have an, an authority on the subject matter. For instance, I'm not going to, if I am in a lawsuit uh, about a medical claim, I'm not going to bring my car mechanic in. He does not have the authority to testify to that claim. And, and Jesus' point here is that only God can testify to the fact that I am God in the flesh. He is the only authority that can be appealed to. There is no greater authority than God the Father. He is the source of all truth. And He is the one true God. And all that He says are true. And so how does God the Father testify that Jesus is the Son of God sent by the Father to redeem sin-cursed men and women and make them sons of God? Jesus trots out three witnesses. First, verse 34 and 35. The testimony of John the Baptist. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things to you that you may be saved. This is Notice the thrust. I'm, I'm telling you these things, not to just bolster my case, but I want you to believe in me. I have, I'm making my case for your sake that you may be saved. 
He was a burning and shining lamp, speaking of John the Baptist. And you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Here's Jesus' point. He shone. And his light was not from within himself. This is really captured in the grammar of the Greek here. John was saying, look, John was set ablaze by someone else. The Father set him ablaze and he was a light that shone. John says, I've got to decrease that he could increase. When he shows up, he's like, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John's whole life, as weird as he was, like he was a weird figure. As weird as he was, his weirdness was to testify to the saneness of Jesus. And his light shone on Jesus. But John's testimony wasn't enough. So the Father himself testifies. Verse 36 and 37. The testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard. His form you've never seen. And and Jesus' point is, but you've seen these works that I've done. And you've recognized them from the woman at the well who Jesus sees straight into her heart and uncovers her that she could be saved, to the wine being changed to water at Galilee, Cana of Galilee, to here in John chapter 5 that starts this whole conflict ablaze when he heals a man who had been lame for 38 years and no one else could help. This is what redemption is. Jesus breaks in to the most hopeless situations, to the most spiritually lame To those who are being drugged down by their sin, he breaks in and he makes new people out of them. Sets them so that the lame can walk and the adulterous can be made whole. And find the love that she had been looking for. These are the works that testify that the Father has sent me. My Father, verse 17, is working until now and now I am working. You've seen us do all of this work. How do you know? Look at my works. They testify that God has shown up to do a work of redemption that no man has ever been able to do for themselves. Third witness is the testimony of Scripture itself. Verse 39. You search the Scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's they that bear witness about me. Let me camp out here for a couple minutes because this is... This is a main point. God speaks in the Bible. This is Jesus' point. This is, this is God's word, the scriptures. I'm trotting them in as a witness from the Father. Because this is how the Father speaks. And the Bible not only is God's word, but it speaks about me. Now... The Bible that they had as he's speaking to the ancient Israelites only contained the first part of our Bibles, the Old Testament as we call it. And Jesus' point is that they should know about Jesus because he is the main point of all that God has been saying up until this point. When God speaks in his word, he speaks about Jesus. This is reiterated in verse 46 here in our passage. For if you believed Moses... And here he's referring to the first five books of the Bible. If you had believed Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote of me. And you may be thinking, if, 
if you're new to Christianity, I don't see Jesus showing up until the latter part of this book. How, how could possibly God have been speaking about him in all of these pages before? But it does, what it does is it gives us an interpretive grid for understanding the Bible. God speaks. And from the very beginning, he has been speaking about his redemptive plan through one man. To save a sin-cursed people to himself. One story of redemption, the Bible is, from beginning to end. It culminates in the gospel. And what that does, that interpretive grid, it should help us when we get stuck in the really weird parts of the Bible that you don't understand. You just have to back up and say, well, I, I know this is one story of redemption that fits all fits together and tells us about Jesus. Now... If you're not a Christian, one of the things that really is offensive about the Bible is holy war. God sending his people out to take captive and kill other people. Let's pull back. If what we know is that this story is unfolding till it culminates in Jesus and tells us about Jesus then this is what holy war, holy war is not about people waging war against their enemies for their own gain. Holy war is about God coming in judgment on unholy nations that have grieved, sinned in grievous ways. Some of these nations were killing their own children and sacrificed at temples. And God says, I'm not only coming in judgment, I'm holding back, I'm being patient that they would come to repentance because the gospel is being clearly played out in the lives of my people. They're hearing about me. They know that I'm a God who redeems. They know the pathway in, but they've chosen their own way. And it's heinous. And I'm waiting for their sin to culminate, to grow to such a grievous degree, and then I will come in, in judgment. And he's going to come in judgment, as God often does. He wraps his works in a person or a people. And as he does, he comes in judgment through the human instrument of Israel. Now, follow that line through. That God comes in judgment through a person and read verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. For he's entrusted judgment to his Son. That's where the story of Holy War finds its fulfillment in the final triumph of Jesus who will come again to judge the living and the dead and all of humanity has to appear before him and he will keep us account. But the heart of the gospel is also captured in this. God declared holy war. But this time he wrapped it in the judgment of his son because God the judge took our sins. God the son who became will become God the judge first became God who bore our judgment. God executed holy war on his own son so that our sins, verse 24, truly, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Why believe in Jesus as the Son of God? Who else would do this for you? 
Now, that does next, what Jesus does next is another proof that he is God in the flesh because he redemptively confronts those who are challenging him. You see, if you have a God that only embraces you but never pushes back, never confronts you, you have a God of your own making, you've, you've crafted your own God, and he has no power to change you. God, the gospel tells us that because God judged his son, we come into a loving embrace with the Father. We pass from judgment to life, but that also means that a father who loves his people are going to confront us redemptively. Not to kill us, but to expose us so we could be freed from the things that are killing us. And so he confronts the root of their unbelief. You don't believe in me. It's a problem. Why? Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. God's clear. I am enough for you, but you refuse to come. Why? Verse 41. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God with you. And I've come in my Father's name. You don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And you do not seek the glory that comes from God. You see what he's saying? That the, the root of our unbelief is runs so deep. The reason you don't believe in me is not because there's not adequate evidence to do so. There's adequate evidence. I've laid it out. The problem is you're so glory hungry that you're looking for it from the wrong places. You seek glory from another Glory hungry people. And what he's digging out is just another way of saying the thing that's keeping you from me is your pride and your rebellion. You've even used the Bible in the wrong way. You've taken the Bible and used it to build a life for yourselves. This is the wrong way to use the Bible. You, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And this is in our own camp too. We use our theology to show our superiority. Look at how together I am. I've got my, all my theological ducks in a row. Or we use our morality to show our superiority. And Jesus is, thinking, is saying, look, you're using the Bible against me. And it's trapping you in unbelief. Because you're using it to receive glory from another. And it blinds us from the better way. Because as the only son of God, he has all of the glory of God within him. I do not receive glory from other people. Verse 41. Got all the glory of God within him. And this is the heart of the gospel. He would be cursed for our sins so that we could receive his glory by faith. And you see what this does for Jesus. Not receiving glory from other people emboldens him. Because he knows that he has the love of God within him. It, it frees him to be honest and bold. And those who have the love of God within us 
by faith in Jesus, it should free us to be bold as well. Because notice that when Jesus is challenged on the offensiveness of his claims, he doesn't soften them to make them more palatable. He doubles down on them to make them more clear. And that's what it looks like when you are no longer trying to receive glory from another. I'm freed. I've been freed by the gospel. I had the glory that comes from God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. I've become sons of God in the Son of God. And now I'm freed. I'm freed when you start challenging, when the world starts challenging us, the people of God shouldn't try to make the claims of Christ more palatable so that everyone is okay with us. We need to make them more clear, which means some won't be okay with us. One, one author put it this way. In the, <clears throat> he says, look, in the university marketplace of ideas, Christian religious belief is generally held suspect because most assume that lurking beneath the surface is an absolute argument for truth that wants to upend secular systems of thought and faith. They are right. In a pluralistic society, it is a truism that absolute claims to religious truth will lead to certain conflict. More precisely, the higher my claims for Christ, that is, the more I affirm his divinity, his exclusive relationship with God, the more separation and alienation I will feel. It is foolish to think that I can have it otherwise. Jesus was judged as a blasphemer. The incriminating designation of someone who trampled on pure religious truth. Jesus was crucified for the strength of his self-disclosure about himself. But the same is true of Jesus' followers as well as the church of John that cherished and lived out this chapter. There is one more witness to the claims of Christ in John's writing. And it doesn't show up until the last book of the Bible. You see, the word for witness that Jesus trots out in verse 33 is the same word from which we get our word martyr. A martyr is a witness. It's the same Greek word. In fact, in our call to worship in Revelation chapter 6, the martyrs, those who have died for the claims of Christ, are in the throne room of God victorious. And they're singing our song, our call to worship in Revelation chapter 7. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They had banked everything on the claims of Jesus as God because He as God would win. We've got to be ready for increasing opposition to these claims of Christ in our world. We, the uniqueness of Jesus, the authority of Jesus are increasingly going to be points of contention in the world. Last December, the Chinese government raided one of the largest house churches in China and arrested more than 100 people, including their pastor, Wing Li. Pastor Wang knew that this would eventually happen to him. 
And so he had drafted a letter that was going to be released if he went missing for more than 48 hours. He had written it, wrote it to his church and said, if I'm gone for more than 48 hours, I want you to publicly release this. Right? Going on behind the scenes is if he renounces Jesus as the Son of God and gives and just lets Christianity sort of fit into the system of the Chinese culture, he's fine. But if he stakes his life on the claims of Jesus, he's going to lose everything. Wang is still missing today. No one knows if he's even alive. His wife has been arrested. His 11-year-old son is living with his grandmother. And the church has lost all of its property And I want to read to you, in closing, a portion of his letter. If you have the time, read the whole thing. This is an extended portion. It's not the whole thing, but I want you to hear this. As a pastor, my firm belief in the gospel, my teaching and my rebuking of all evil proceeds from Christ's command in the gospel and from the unfathomable love of that glorious king. Every man's life is extremely short, and God fervently commands the church to lead and call any man to repentance who is willing to repent. Christ is eager and willing to forgive all who turn from their sins. This is the goal of all the efforts of the church in China, to testify to the world about our Christ, to testify to the middle kingdom about the kingdom of heaven, to testify to earthly momentary lives about the heavenly eternal life. This is also the pastoral calling that I have received for the mission of the church is only to be the church and not to become part of any secular institution. From a negative perspective, the church must separate itself from the world and keep itself from being institutionalized from the world. From a positive perspective, all acts of the church are attempts to prove to the world the real existence of another world. The Bible teaches us that in all manners relating to the gospel and human conscience, we must obey God and not men. For this reason, spiritual disobedience and bodily suffering are both Ways we testify to another eternal world and to another glorious king. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief towards those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me that he would grant me patience and wisdom that I might take the gospel to them. Separate me from my wife and children. Ruin my reputation. Destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all of these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life. And no one can raise me from the dead. Jesus is the Christ, son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my king and the king of the whole earth, yesterday, today, and forever. I am his servant, and I am in prison because of this. I will resist in meekness those who resist God, and I will joyfully violate all laws that violate God's loss.
because God the Son will pay back in the age to come with all of the riches that he has earned and are stored up for us. He will pay back all that you will lose. We're not trying to make the claims of Christ more palatable, but for making them more clear. For the hope of all of our lives and all of our friends lays on that. Let's pray. Lord, pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are actively facing such a cost for following Jesus. Lord, sustain their faith from your heavenly throne. Encourage and provide for them. And Father, I pray, make us a people who are bold and clear. Gracious and kind with the gospel, but bold and clear. For God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. The Son of God and the Son of Man. Amen. Please turn.